Kia ora everybody and welcome to this bonus episode of the podcast. Uh, this is mostly for our New Zealand audience and also anybody who's got a keen interest in hunting. If you've been keeping up with the news, uh, in New Zealand there's been a proposed cull of 25,000 of the tar population. For the tar population in New Zealand that ranges anywhere from 17 to 35,000 tar and of course if there's 25,000 gone and it's in the lower part of that estimate that basically eliminates the tar and, and means that they're no longer viable. Why this is important is there's plenty of people, for example our guest today Joseph Peter, who good quality tar are their livelihood and also from a world perspective New Zealand's tar population is the only sort of sustainable tar population in the world and they're in a very endangered state in their homeland of the Himalayas, near Nepal of course, Um, that's where they get their name, Himalayan tar. For those that don't know what a tar is, it's a type of mountain goat, Um, they can be called the bears um, of of the New Zealand high country, they look kind of like a lion, they're one of the few animals that have a mane. Um, they look pretty majestic up there in the mountains, especially around Mount Cook. They were first released at Mount Cook near the Hermitage. And um, after a good hundred years or so, they've started to take a little bit of a stranglehold in some basins. A um, few friends who work in the guiding industry, uh, they go out on concentrated culls and a number of the New Zealand hunting shows such as NZ Hunter and Hunters Club have shown just how the population is starting to creep up and could do with a little bit of controlling. Um, but in a mass cull where they take out the breeding population of quality males, um, they wipe out basically with the proposed plan the entire population of mature bulls, then there's not going to be much left for that population to keep going and to prop up that that's in their home range of the Himalayas. So. It's brought a lot of controversy over the last fortnight. Um, a lot of people have put their uh, hands to emails and, and got together in, in meetings to try and change the mind of the Green Minister, Eugenie Sage, and um, the cull has been halted at this point in time, but what the future holds for the population of tar in New Zealand is yet to be decided. And what this podcast is basically doing is to try and expose the other side of the argument to try and bring awareness of actually what these animals mean to people like myself and and even more so those involved with the hunting industry and the outdoors and wilderness industries of New Zealand. Um, As I talk about in the podcast, Joseph has a fantastic video with the Pace Brothers on Modern Huntsman. Make sure you check that out. Check out Pace Brothers and check out Modern Huntsman. And also check out the Pace Brothers podcast themselves. They did one with Greg Dooley from NZ Hunter, which is hugely informative um, and uh, really gets into the nuts and bolts of the issue. So without further ado, let's get into this podcast and hear what Joseph has to say. Um, And if you'd like to help, make sure you check out the New Zealand Tar Foundation on Facebook. Cheers. (laughs) Kia ora everybody. I'm sitting here with Joseph Peter. Um, He's from Hard Yards Hunting and... If you're familiar with my podcast, uh, back a few episodes, I interviewed the legends from Modern Huntsman, which they do the most amazing publication, and they've brought out volume two. 
and they've also got a website that shoots videos and one of their regular contributors pace brothers came to new zealand a few months back and viewed joseph doing what he does best made a film and um they were set to release that and about the same time all this furore about tars come up and of course the film was about hunting tar and and um it's now taken on a massive significance. But before we get into that, Joseph, what have you been doing this weekend, mate? You're based in the uh, tropical Twizel. Tropical Twizel. Uh, this weekend, I've actually just come back to the garage and been making some bullets. Yeah. Supposed to be getting prepared. I'm heading over to Kazakhstan in 12 days <coughs> on Ibex hunt. So I'm supposed to be getting prepared for that and get some ammo ready and sort of finalising my gear. But um, the last couple of weeks have been pretty hectic, to say the least. I think everyone involved in the, in the hunting community in New Zealand has been pretty scrambled, especially the commercial guys and, and a lot of recreational guys as well. Um, what the conservation minister, Sage, has come out with has given us all a bit of a kick up the arse, which <coughs> in some ways is good. It's pulled a lot of hunting groups together a lot of unity going on and everyone's on the same page about what we want to try and achieve so <coughs> we've been doing a lot of scribbling on paper and phone calls and sending emails and trying to get trying to get things to happen getting there i think but a bit changing so. yeah absolutely so um who is joseph peter today mate who are you <laughs> uh, who am i so i I work as a hunting guide for half a year. I run my own outfit, um, Hard Yards Hunting. I started working as a hunting guide, I was about 16 or 17 with my uncle, Bernard. He started um, the Hard Yards Hunting sort of image, I suppose, and I took that on. Um, we've shifted our focus in the guiding industry towards the adventure, the wilderness, hunting aspect not so much the shooting critters and put them on the wall that's kind of been our focus over the last couple of years i've been trying to change the way that sort of new zealand is viewed in some ways in terms of the, the guiding industry um, the guiding industry in new zealand has been heavily focused on <coughs> the, the high-end lodge and the high fence red stag that's been a big part of the market here there's a number of reasons for that, but I think a lot of the clientele and the hunting industry itself overlooks what is more important, and that is the, in my mind anyway, the hunt and the adventure and the experience, not just trophy. So I think we've got to kind of have a bit of balance in the industry. We've got to try and try and provide <laughs> try and provide a bit of both. Absolutely, I think. I think, I think in my sphere, the, and, and and something that's sort of bringing about um, a greater awareness and interest in hunting is coming from guys like you know you, you Joe Rogan, who I saw something the other day that he's basically the the male's version of Oprah, um, and guys that guys that he has on like Cameron Haynes and, and Adam Greentree, um, and and even Nick Morton, who who um, owns Ozcut uh, Broadheads. In Australia, you know the the real key point that they're putting across is, is this is not about what the end result is. It's about this adventure and and 
And um, a couple of years back, I wrote about uh, a raw hunt that a mate and myself went on in the Blue River and we didn't see a thing. Um, but going 18 kilometres into the wilderness was just super amazing, even if it was to sit in a tent for 24 hours and get rained on. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, do you, what do you think makes it so appealing to go the hard yards, mate? Um, I know it's just that it's just the experience, the adventure. I think once you leave the sort of modern world, it takes you a day to kind of relax to forget about the internet, forget about your phone, forget about all the other shit that you've got to do, and then you actually wake up and you can look around and go, Oh, there's one around, and oh, this is this is this is actually what nature is about. Uh, and I think as our lives have become more technologically advanced, I suppose, we've got further and further away from that. And for the average average Joe Blog who lives in the city and he works his nine to five, he's lost that connection completely. And it's it's a way to get back to back to nature and back to what humans are about. This is what we're supposed to supposed to be part of nature. We're not we're not supposed to be visitors, we're not supposed to go there on the weekend. We're actually supposed to be part of the system. And we've kind of missed that. It's only going to get worse, I think. Yeah, mate. <coughs> when, when we were when we were in that Blue River um, Valley, we were we were too scared to get up up the mountains. And I was watching that Pace, Pace Brothers um, video, and you're on this steep as hell face, looking across at another one. And I think you even make the 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 comment when you're looking at a tar that this is a spot for tar, not for for people. <laughs> um, how do you and how do the clients you know, get over that hump and get there? And, and I suppose that's where you, you become such an important role in their adventure and their expedition. Yeah, everyone has their, has their limit and everyone has their comfort zone. What for me is a steep mountain might, might be unreal for someone else. It might not be that steep for someone else. And part of being a good guide is being able to read your clients not just during the hunt, but leading up to the hunt, we try and do a few, you know, quite extensive emails and do a few phone calls with guys and try and figure out, you know, what is this this guy or, or woman want from this hunt? Where are they at in their own hunting career or their own physical ability? And you want to you want to push people a little bit, but you don't want to you don't want to scare people and you don't want to make their lives miserable. But you want to have a bit of challenge involved, um, and that's something that. Every year you have to look back on your season and go, right, that decision was the wrong decision because we ended up in a shitty spot or you know, maybe we crossed the line there. You know, there's, there's a fine line in mountain hunting, especially animals like tar. You can get yourselves into a bit of a pickle if you push yourself a bit too much. Um, and I think it's something that just takes, it just takes experience. It takes, you know, hundreds of days in the mountains to look at a face and go, all right, I can up that gut, go across that ridge and that's safe, or you better just to sit there and look at it and go, I'm not even going to bother, or just sit here and wait and see what happens. Nice. Uh, you, you also make the comment that um, you're only a visitor in their habitat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't want to stay there. <laughs> yeah. it, would, it would be nice to be able to live in our country, but most of us aren't really tough enough to do that, myself included. It's a pretty harsh environment, especially on the West Coast. You know, I think we underestimate 
how tough animals are, even, you know, deer to rabbits to whatever, you know, you go outside with no gear and slip on your lawn and see how you get on, let alone in the mountains, you know. I think we don't have as much respect as we probably should for how tough wild animals are, really, how they exist. <coughs> so, so you mentioned you're about to go on a trip to Kazakhstan. What's your prep been like for that, man? It hasn't been very good. I've <laughs> been quite sick over the last couple of months and my fitness isn't very good. Um, I've done a little bit of shooting, but I'm hoping I have a good horse that's going to pull me up the mountain. Um, so I had a guy called Kazim. He hunted with me back in May and he's from a company called Pro Hunt Kazakh. He came and did a, a tar and chamois hunt with me and kind of teed up a bit of a deal there. And I'm going over with my uncle. Bernard, who started hard yards hunting, mid-Asian ibex, on nine days hunting. I think we're going to be pretty close to the Chinese border. And it should be a, it should be a pretty good experience. As a guide, it's quite good to put yourselves in the client's shoes every now and then. Um, you learn a lot being on the other end of the stick. As a guide, you're always trying to make the decisions, make the right decisions, whereas a client, a lot of the time, it's hard to just be a passenger. Um, I know I've, I haven't done a lot of international hunts or a lot, <coughs> or a lot of guided hunts. I've worked with other guides, and sometimes you just have to sit back and go, "This is their, this is their domain. They know what they're doing, and you just have to trust them." I'm just going to do what these guys say because this is their job. And that can be quite difficult, especially if you've guided yourself or if you are. An experienced hunter think, oh this is what we should be doing and and I try to be open and honest with my clients and usually I'll have a plan they'll have a plan and we might cut it somewhere in the middle and take a bit from both plans and make a better plan so I'm looking forward to seeing seeing what the hunt's going to be like uh, the mid-asian ibex for a lot of mountain hunters is is the proper king of the mountains we think of the tar as the king of the mountains but the ibex terms of the trophy if you want to call it you know they've got a lot more going on they're, uh, they're pretty impressive forms and live in some pretty good ranks pretty looking forward to that now it's, it's starting to become real <laughs> absolutely and you said it's interesting being guided that one of the probably uh best nz hunter episodes in their last season was when um willie was over in austria to visit Swarovski, but then they took him out into the mountains for a chamois and you know, he spotted the ibex and just see his eyes, you know, go, <laughs> oh, go, go on stalks. But yeah, also his, his decision making around, you know, what what he thought was a suitable animal and what the what the guys thought it, it sort of was really interesting. And of course, the different customs for um, each country, like, you know, they had to get off the mountain yeah. before dark and, you know, you can't shoot this one or else you pretty much go to jail and <laughs> <laughs> yeah especially especially in europe kiwis and, and australians are similar as well with our our hunting culture is defined by our own decisions not by any laws yeah more or less do what you want really um whereas in most of europe you have you know a pretty strict strict set of laws and customs as well that you have to follow and the same in, in north america you've got a lot of laws that Follow, and I think for a lot of Kiwis, when they go on international hunts, they struggle with that a little bit because we're used to just, oh, it doesn't matter, I'll shoot that one and who cares, or 
you know, oh, it's, it's dark, we'll just shoot that one anyway. You know, we don't have legal shooting height. We don't have limits on what we can shoot. It'll have to be a certain size or anything like that. So that can be a little tricky when you first um, enter, I suppose, regulated hunting. <laughs> For a lot of Kiwis and Aussies, it's, it's something quite foreign to us. Absolutely. I guess that, that takes us into the tar and, and what people are sort of hoping for is that they become a herd of special interest. The only real president we've got here is the Field and Wapiti. Um, and I was listening to Greg Dooley talk to some of the pace bowlers and basically saying the management of them is kind of an, out, outside the law, but it works. Yeah. Um, and so what what putting them in a, in a case of a special interest herd means that it takes them out of the Wild Animal Control Act and, and removes that label of pest, which um, I'm on Twitter and, and, you know, it's got the reputation for being a little bit left-leaning and there's plenty of forest and bird and labour and green supporters <laughs> on there. Um, yeah, if, if you went by them, and, and, I, and I guess the Minister, Eugenie Sage yourself, you know, you'd, you'd get rid of everything that has a hoof and a, and a, and a, and a guts and, and it'd just be birds in, in jungle. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good, on paper, I, I, I get it, and I, I can get where they're coming from with predator-free 2050 and you know, the idea of restoring New Zealand to its former glory, if you want to call it that. The reality is that it's it's too far gone. It's, we like to look and go, oh, this is a natural habitat, but there's nowhere in New Zealand that is, is natural. You know, There's been so many species lost and so much um, change to uh, especially the east, eastern side of the South Island. All the country's been changed. It's either been deforested or burnt or <coughs> worked up and replanted, oversown. And we don't know what Zealand was like in pre-human times. Even when the white man turned up here, it was, it was very different to what it was, you know, before the, the Mary arrived. And I think we have to recognise the situation and accept what we've got now, go right, it's not perfect, but this is what it is. And killing tars not going to bring the male back, and killing all the introduced animals is not going to bring back the extinct species that we've lost. That's not how it works. <laughs> um, so I think we have to kind of give up on that, that mentality. I don't think it's practically possible, you know, in terms of actually getting the job done and economically viable terms of the cost it would take and damage to other industries, uh, not just the hunting industry, things like the farming industry, it's going to be massive flow-on effects if we keep going down that path of trying to eliminate all these species. Like the predator-free 2050 is, it sounds good, but, you know, Eugene Sage is listening, go and kill all the rats that live on the street see how you can do that but you can't even kill the rats that live in your own house let alone the whole country you know, the idea behind it is it's just ridiculous really when you try and put it into a, into a real world landscape it's so hard to it's hard to get that job done <coughs> yeah i've sort of heard, heard it put to me that the um pest-free models that we've got are very good for small isolated Subantarctic islands, but when you've got, got um, a landmass which you know New Zealand's not large, but compared to a isolated Subantarctic island, we've we've got a lot of confounding factors going on instead of 
isolation and <coughs> whilst it works to some extent there's always other factors that are going to inhibit the, the, the goal and I, and I guess you nearly touched on it there that what what they're looking at in terms of kill the tar is not going to get their desired outcome um, and that should be more what they measure and this is what Greg was talking about if you're wanting if you're wanting the um, lilies to be at a certain number if you're wanting the certain grasses to be at a certain level and you're wanting to hear a certain bird song in, in certain areas surely look at that and then look at the other com- confounding factors and, and do something about those based on that rather than if we've got no tar then we'll then we'll you know then we should get this result and even if that's not yeah the case. yeah yeah that's exactly right i think it's easy to think killing introduced animals saves natives but it's not always the case you know in some cases with stoats and predators it's a pretty direct relationship but in the situation with tar there's there's chamois and there's red deer living within their range as well and there's a lot of other factors going on it's not as simple as just i'm just going to shoot tar and it's going to be better i think you need to think about it a lot more than that and <coughs> the way that gene <coughs> has pushed her current control it's based purely on a number of dead tar that's how they measure going to measure their success it's not based on biodiversity it's not based on vegetation health it's just based on dead tar which is more or less pointless figure what, what has that got to do with vegetation health we need to we need to get to the plants and have a look at them not look at the tar yeah and um it was it was interesting um Hunters Club had had an image of them in a valley with that was covered in Mount Cook lilies and covered in tar, and they're like, oh, so "What's going on here?" <laughs> but uh, yeah, edibles edibles eat you know flowering and and um, rank grasses, and that allows for them to then come away. You know, you, you said you've got a background in farming, and the best way to keep grasses growing is to to graze them. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's a point, you know, you, you can definitely you can definitely overdo it. Um, but you know, especially in the case of grasses, if you look up the definition of what is a grass, uh, the evolutionary pathway to them is they're designed to be eaten or cut or chewed down and that is how grass works. Um, some of the other plants like the Mount Cook lilies and that that group of plants, they're a lot more sensitive and you have to be a bit more careful with them. I think there's a big lack in recent research. All the, the data we have on tar grazing is from the 70s, um, the 80s, and it's pretty outdated. Densities and other animals within the habitat, you know, if you go back to the start of the deer wars, within the tar range, there was a high number of tar and a high number of deer and a high number of chamois. So vegetation was getting hammered from all angles. Now, Deer population—it's definitely building up. It's getting higher, but it's nothing like it was. Especially within the tar range, it's not that high at all. And a lot of the chamois population has moved out of the tar range in, in a lot of places. And the chamois densities are pretty low at the moment, I think, across the tar range. <coughs> yes, yeah, so. Yeah, and you're, and you're saying about how a lot of this data is pretty old and um, some of the figures that I've been 
been hearing is, is it's they've gone with thirty five thousand tar in the country, but it could be seventeen thousand, could be fifty four thousand. Um, although I'm sure a few people that actually get up there and out there would argue there's not fifty four thousand uh, tar running around, but there are there are, there are too many, and, and all of those numbers are above the you know plucked out of the year ten thousand figure. But yeah, what what in your sort of areas that you go hunting in, what do you sort of see one about numbers and then two about quality? I think numbers are are really hard to put a figure on. Um, especially with hunting, you know, if you imagine a week-long hunt, you see a lot of the same animals over that week, so it's hard to count those out. Um, there's definitely areas where there is too many tar, you would say. Um, across the range, the number is probably close to 30,000, something like that. I don't know. It's, it's pretty hard to figure that out, and you should really sit down with the notebook and work it out. The problem with the, the data that they've done is it's been based on an aerial survey. Um, so they've flown around the helicopter, flown over these plots and had a two kilometre square plot, counted all the animals, they do that a couple of times and extrapolate that data across the range. And the problem with the aerial survey is that in the open country, in the east coast, um, units where they've proposed most of their culling, units one and three, I think, um, in those areas, you're likely to overestimate the tar population <coughs> with an aerial survey. And the areas on the west coast where there's a lot of scrub animals and a lot of animals living in and around the bush, you're going to underestimate the population. So I think they've got that around the wrong way. And then in terms of what are those animals doing in terms of damage, I think on the east coast, a lot of the country is dominantly tussock. And tar diet is about 70 or 80 percent tussock, at least. Um, so in those areas, they're just eating the tussock; they don't eat much else. There's not really any damage to the environment, <coughs> from my experience, anyway. Then there's areas on the west coast where there definitely is damage happening. You know, and these are normally scrubby faces where there isn't tussock. There isn't big tussock faces, so the tar are, are feeding on the flax. They're feeding on dracophyllums are feeding on all of these little subalpine, um, what we like to call monkey scrub, and then all the smaller plants that make up that, <coughs> that vegetation. Um, and that is where most of the damage is happening. And if you talk to the Department of Conservation, the guys that do the tar control, they know that. They know the areas that need tune-up. Uh, but the proposed plan from SAGE has not taken any of that into account. It's just focused on shooting the maximum number of tar per dollar and you go to the easiest open country east coast areas and just look into it and it's not focused on detecting the habitat where it needs to be for people so i think there's a big issue with the proposed plan in that aspect yeah nice um so there's a call in that in that plan to to kill bulls now what does that mean for you and people like you um who are you know, looking to sell a trophy. It's pretty frustrating. There has been a, I suppose, gentleman's agreement for a long time between the department and hunter groups, both recreational and commercial, that the control is going to be focused on nannies. And from all points in terms of value for money on control and actually reducing the population, shooting nannies, 
makes the biggest impact. And in terms of vegetation damage, nannies live in a small area, bulls, they have a summer and a winter range, they wander around a lot, they don't live in high density. Uh, so on that aspect as well, it doesn't make any sense to shoot bulls. Uh, what, what Sage has proposed, she's saying 30% <coughs> of 10,000 tar are bulls, whereas 10 Tustin's data, and most of us would say that that's about 10 or 11% in terms of identifiable bulls. That's three or four years old plus. Um, and then of that, trophy quality bulls um, are only going to be two or 3%. So the 3,000 bulls that they're proposing to shoot is likely to be the whole amount of bulls we have out of 35,000 tar. It's only going to be three or 4,000 bulls. Um, shooting that many will have a massive impact on not only the commercial industry, but actual hunters. And for the department to get recreational hunters on board, both myself, my clients, and Joe Blogs down the street, we predominantly hunt tar for bulls, but when we're there, we shoot nannies. But to get us up on the hill just to shoot nannies when there's no rise at the end, there's no, oh, I might see a big bull, a lot of hunters are not going to go. Um, and Long term, you know, the department needs recreational hunters to pick up the act and to be, <coughs> to be controlling the tar, removing that incentive off bulls more or less destroys a huge number of hunters and why they would go tar hunting. There'd be plenty of people, if that happens, plenty of people go, what's the point? There's no bulls out there, why am I going to go hunting? And then the problem's going to get worse 10 years down the track, the population will bring back up again. Yeah, absolutely. That that uh, expedition I was telling about in the Blue River found out that uh, most of that area gets a good clean up from the Wairau boys in around about February. Yeah. So April and April and May aren't much, much good to you. Mate, um, it's been absolutely awesome to, to get your perspective on this and it's been something that I've been trying to track somebody down for since, since the news came out, mate. Where do people find the little short clip and, and where can people follow your journey and especially this? Um, Kazakhstan hunter, it'll be amazing to, to check in with you and see how things go. Where do people find you? Um, so we're Hard Yards Hunting. We have a website, hardyardshunting.co.nz and Hard Yards Hunting on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, the Modern Huntsman is where you want to get on board to see how we film. Uh, and the Modern Huntsman is putting out their second print edition. I wouldn't call it a magazine, but it's not a book, it's something else. Um, you've got one there. It's Bloody beautiful. <laughs> it's kind of moving the hunting, the image of hunting forward, but maybe sideways, or trying to present hunting in a way that is more acceptable to the non-hunting audience. I think that's quite important as hunting becomes under a lot of pressure. Um, so this second edition of that um, this book you call it is coming out next month. And you can pre-order that on their website, Modern Huntsman. Um, there's quite a lot of um, discussion around public land use. There's going to be quite a few more photos in there from Byron and our hunt. Um, yeah. so good to have a look at that. And the Tar Foundation Facebook page is the best place to keep up to date with what's happening with Tar. There's supposed to be a meeting tomorrow with Eugenie Sage and Game Animal Council. Um, 
she's going to be pretty tough to work with, I think. I think it's going to end up in port. Um, we're probably not going to see the Game Animal Council's plan carried through, and we're probably not going to see Sage's plan carried through. It's going to be somewhere in between. But what exactly is going to happen is still up in the air. <coughs> yeah, and, and I saw she was at the Seeker uh, Show yesterday in Zopor, and um, by all accounts, so far I've seen she didn't get egged, but um, <laughs> there was some frank discussion and a few of the comments on, on from the, the guys at NZ Hunter and, and the Seeker Show and, and the Tar Foundation. Um, yeah, a few people expressed their, their concerns with, with her on, on the Facebook and hopefully that didn't follow through at at the Seeker Show and people were civil, but yeah. Mate, um, and of course on that Tar Foundation, people can donate to the, the Give a Little. I think it's uh, pushing over 100,000. That just shows how, how passionate people are about this. Um, yeah, it's on about 153,000, I think, now. Awesome, awesome. And so... <laughs> On that note, what's what's something you'd like to leave people with um, from a perception of hunting and and also, you know, learning a little bit more before you, you go ahead and say, I'll oh, kill the pests? <laughs> I think I think for the hunters out there, we have to do our part in terms of presenting hunting as a, a more rounded um, activity. You can't just focus on killing critters and sticking them on the wall or sticking them in the oven, either way, there has to be a whole story behind it. And for the non-hunters out there, you know, if, you, if you've never been hunting and you think, you know, what's all this hunting about, ask someone, find a hunting group, sign up, go on a hunt, and I can guarantee you it'll be different to what you think it's going to be. Um, and I think as we move forward, people need to be, open with their views, but not shutting down someone else's views. We need to be accepting of people's choices. If someone chooses to go hunting, that's their choice. You shouldn't jump on top of them. Um, and in the case of New Zealand and Australia, where you've got introduced animals, it's going to be very tricky to manage them in a way that both protects natives and um, has population that's maybe there to hunt or maybe that population just exists to protect the species. In the case of tar, um, it's an <coughs> internationally important species and to destroy them because they're introduced is not fair on tar in their native range or not fair on them as a species. Um, and I think we need to just kind of slow down a little bit, take our time and work through the system and it's the same in Australia. There's, there's a growing sort of trend, I think, with the Samba herd at the moment to try and reduce it pretty hard. And you have to sit back and go, is this really the right thing to do? Are there better methods? Are there better ways to get the local hunting guys involved? Um, how can we make this better for both parties? I think that needs to happen. Everyone needs to work to get a solution. <coughs> awesome, mate. Thank you very, very much. And, um, Hopefully you get a little bit better before your big hunt. Thanks so much. <laughs> I hope so. Oh, thank you very much. Cheers, mate. <coughs> so hopefully you learnt a little bit there. Um, and as Joseph said, if you've never been hunting, try find somebody that goes hunting and ask them if they'll take you along. I'm sure the answer will be yes or they'll send you in the right direction. Um, it's not about the animals. It's about the true experience 
and um, like I talked about in my blog, when my good friend Daniel and I went hunting up the Blue River, we didn't see any animals, but what an experience and what an adventure, and you learn a hell of a lot about yourself when you've walked 18 kilometres into the wilderness and you sit in a tent for a day in the rain and then you walk all the way back, um, seeing some of the most incredible scenery that you can't even describe. So, yeah, it's a big issue right now in the hunting community and also, I guess, in the environmental community with the New Zealand Department of Conservation, Forest, Forest and Bird, and, of course, Parliament itself weighing in on various issues around the tar population and the greater wild animal population of New Zealand and what that means for us as a country, what we do with that as a resource, or do they just keep falling under the, the bracket of pests and total elimination of those animals? Of course, the episode's brought to you by Waikido. If you're a hunter, ketones can help you go for longer, keep you concentrated, um, keep you focused on those times where you've been without food all day um, and really provide an alternative energy source. Being fat adapted is massive in the hills for those long, hard slogs up mountains. Um, nothing like using the energy that's on your body and keeping yourself going, keeping yourself focused. Exogenous ketones provide your way to get that little bit of boost, turn your metabolism from your everyday into that hunting mode. Goes well with those uh, bits of cheese and, and salami on the hill, I can tell you that. If you want to check it out, head over to W-A-I-K-E-T-O on Facebook. Check out our page. You'll find all the rest of our podcasts there. Or go to Stag Vision on Instagram. Get in touch with me if you're in New Zealand. Otherwise, if you're in Australia, the States, Canada, or Asia, go to W-A-I-K-E-T-0.proveitnow.com and get your hands on some. Cheers.